Well, hey, and welcome to episode 17 of the Gospel for Everyone podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Krismer, and I'm so glad you're here. Well, on today's episode, Jason and I sit down with first-time podcast guest Amy Brush. Amy's on our team here at Quad City, and we're excited to have her join the conversation as we discuss the origin of sin and the role that Satan, Adam, and Eve all played in it. What happened to the people that lived and died in between the time of Adam and Moses and the hope that we have when we lose a young child? As always, if you haven't yet listened to Sunday's message, I encourage you to go back and do so before moving on with this episode, as it's going to make it make much more sense to you. Well, thanks again for joining us today. We hope you enjoy. Well, hey guys, good morning. Happy Monday. Hello, hello. Good morning. Hey, hey, so before we dive in, we've got a special guest today. Uh, Josh is out of town today. So we brought in Amy, who's our kids director and campus coordinator on our Prescott Valley campus. Welcome, Amy. Hi, everybody. So we're excited to, uh, to spend some time together this morning. Um, but before we dive in, it's Thanksgiving week. I don't know about you guys. I, I'm not a huge fan of Thanksgiving just by the general nature of holidays, um, but I do like food a lot. Like I like to cook, so I, I do enjoy preparing Thanksgiving food, uh, which is always one of my favorite parts. But let's talk a little bit. What, what were your guys' like Thanksgiving traditions growing up? Anything fun? Uh, before we get to the traditions, I feel like I need to call you out because – I've heard you say, like, you don't like Thanksgiving food. No, I, generally speaking. So, like, I don't like turkey, right? I don't mm. see what the big deal with the turkey thing is. No one eats turkey throughout the year. When was the last time you bought a turkey that wasn't Thanksgiving? Right. Well, I, for a sandwich. Yeah, you buy turkey, but you don't yeah. buy a turkey. Right. Like, we don't buy a whole turkey, roast it, and then slice it in sure. the lunch meat. Yeah. We just buy Nobody's doing lunch. that in July. Right. So, I yeah. don't understand why it becomes such a big deal <laughs> On in November, like why? Why is Turkey now this big thing that we have to do every year? Because that's what the Pilgrims did. Is that right? <laughs> do you think that's really what the Pilgrims did, Jason? I think the Pilgrims were doing a lot of other stuff, but I'm not sure that roasting turkeys was one of those things. <laughs> okay, yeah. All right. So traditions. Back to that one. Okay. Um, for us, uh, we went to Grandma's house, so that was kind of the tradition. So we. Uh, we would drive north about an hour and a half from our little town in Harrodsburg to where my grandparents lived. And they had this really old house. And one room, you know, they had the old dining room. You know, it was an old house, so it was all chopped up. There was no open concept housing. And the dining room, like, that was the only time that it got used. Like, all the rest of the year... That room never got used, but on Thanksgiving, that's where the adults sat, and I didn't get to sit there because I was relegated to the kids' table, obviously, in the little kitchen um, that was sitting, the table was sitting beside the washing machine. So that's where I got to sit with a few of my cousins, and, and that was the thing. The only thing I really remember about those Thanksgiving dinners is we all had to dress up, so you had to wear the scratchy sweater. And 
And for some reason, there was a tradition for my grandfather where he ate oysters for Thanksgiving. That sounds better than turkey. Oh, I'd rather have oysters mm, than turkey. Negative. So speaking of the scratchy sweaters, that does make one memory come to mind. So we would, uh, similarly, we would go north. Uh, my grandparents, we, uh, I grew up um, outside the Chicago. Grandparents had a house in Wisconsin. So we would generally go up um, for Thanksgiving up to Wisconsin and, and do dinner there. Um, and they're dog people. They've always had a bunch of dogs, <clears throat> mostly hunting dogs. They would do a little bit of bird hunting. So um, we went up one year and I was, uh, you know, given this scratchy sweater that you wear around the holidays from my uh, godfather. He got it in Finland, I think. Mm. So it gives me this nice wool sweater. I've got this really, really itchy wool sweater on. And I walk through the door and they've got this big, like 145 pound Rottweiler, right? And it's this Rottweiler, not not necessarily a hunting dog by nature, but they've trained this hmm. dog, this Rottweiler to be a bird hunting dog, which is interesting. That is a really, really gentle hunting dog. And it comes over and it does not like the sweater. It just starts <laughs> growling immediately. This big 145 pound dog uh, named Charger. Charger just started uh, growling at my sweater, so I had to take my sweater off. <laughs> so that's what I remember about Thanksgiving. So why did we dress up? But uh, Who dresses up for Thanksgiving anymore? Do you dress up? Uh, I'll, I mean, I wear what I would typically wear, which is, I don't know, a button down and jeans. Right. So that's not dressing up. If it's what you always wear, it's not really dressing up. I don't know. It's just something we used to do. Yeah. I just remember everybody always dressed up. Yeah. What did you guys do for, for Thanksgiving? We were like super non-traditional. We would load up on Wednesday and drive out to Buttercup <coughs> and go to the sand dunes. Nice. And we had a bunch of sand rails that my dad made from the ground up. My grandpa made some and hmm. my grandma would cook a turkey before and it would be cold. I don't ever remember <laughs> us having warm turkey around Thanksgiving. We yeah. would just have like turkey sandwiches, like slice up the turkey, put on some bread with some mayo. And that was our Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. But so, we were spending the time in out in the sand rails. So what, for those who have no idea what you're talking about, what is Buttercup? Buttercup is uh, sand dunes, like out in California. Glamis is one of the other ones that are out there. And you basically take your sand rails out there and there's lots of real soft sand. And you just drive up over them. Sand gets everywhere. One year there's these like holes that are called witch's eyes. And if you go around it, you get stuck. Like the sand just falls. Oh. And one of our guys got stuck down there. And you almost can't get out. Like some people get stuck. And we, I mean, it took a whole bunch of us hours just trying to pull them up. Because you get, you make a little bit and you slide back down. Yeah. You make a little bit more and then you slide back down. So, that sounds and, terrifying. Um, well, yeah, you just don't go in them. You just stay on the outside yeah. rim. It sounds like maybe he did though. He, he did, did. He, he did. did he did. He went a little too deep, and if you go a little too deep in it, you just start slide oh. down. That's the end. So, and Friday night was always the night that we'd all go. There's this one hill. It's like straight up. It's like a vertical hill, and everybody there would go out there, and music would be playing. It's dark, and y'all try to go up as high as you can go before your car starts to go backwards. You can turn back around. Oh, that was our fun. Friday night. Nice. So I never like. Black Friday shopping or like Thanksgiving meals. Like we didn't dress up. I got a new t-shirt every Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh, that's fun. Yeah. So I, um, yeah, I, I like Black Friday shopping is the bane of my existence. Mm-hmm. I shop when no one else is in any of the stores yeah. anyways, or I just buy things online. Right. So I just, I don't like shopping to begin with. So the idea of going when everyone else is going to go, even if you get a 25% discount just doesn't sound fun. It sounds me. exhausting. The discount's almost not worth it. I, I would agree entirely. 
All right. Well, hey, let's dive into our message from Sunday. We've got actually a fair bit to cover. A fair few questions came up. Uh, so this past Sunday, we went through Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Um, and Jason, we've got a, a list of questions. You had mentioned at the beginning of the message, hey, we're kind of getting into some deeper theological waters. There's some things we need to really flesh out. And that's just kind of hard to do in 35 minutes. So I think you did a great job of, of clarifying or at least making a fairly complex train of thought easier to understand, a little more simple. Um, so I thought that was great. Great job on you. Um, but we did have a couple of questions. So here's where I want to start. If we say that sin entered the world through Adam, I think what what we're by nature implying is that sin existed before Adam. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, yeah, this was a new thought for several people. I had some some questions around this. And I don't, let's, let me clarify a little bit. I We don't know the timetable here. So the timeline when we say sin existed before Adam, that I'm not sure of. We do know that sin existed before Adam sinned. And uh, so just to make that clarification. So I think the way I kind of picture this this timeline <clears throat> is that sin probably, I don't think it was, if I had to put my hand on the Bible and swear allegiance, I would think I don't think sin existed at the end of creation week. I think when God says it is good, I think it was all good. I think sometimes we read the first couple of chapters of Genesis and we compress it all. Like we just assume that, you know, Adam was, you know, created on Saturday and they had the weekend and that was good. And then by the time they get to Monday, they're eating the fruit. I don't think that's true. I think there was, many scholars believe there was something maybe even up to like a hundred years between the time of Adam being created and the fall happening. So between chapter two and chapter three, maybe up even to a hundred years. We know that Seth wasn't born until Adam was 130. That's the first date we have in the, in the Bible, 130. Um, and Cain and Abel were born before that, had been grown up. Um, but Cain and Abel didn't, weren't born and grown up until Adam and Eve were out of the garden. So they were yeah. cast out. So there's a, a big time gap there. Um, and I think it was in that time gap where we have the rebellion of Satan. So we do recognize the fact that sin happened before Adam because we already have Satan at some point while Adam and Eve were still in the garden that, that Satan came in the serpent tempting Adam and Eve. So Satan had already fallen and had already tried to begin recruiting man to join him in their rebellion against God. So we know that, that sin happened. What happened with Satan, um, and if you're interested, you can go read a little bit in Isaiah 14, uh, 12 through 15. It's Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. And then Ezekiel 28, 12 through 15 or 12 through 17. So these are a couple of pictures that kind of share with us a little of, of the backstory of what happened with Satan and God. So all of that to say, I think the, the fall of Satan was, was when sin happened, 
And then it entered the world, entered into creation, when Satan then came and recruited Adam and Eve to join in his rebellion, telling them, you can be like God, which was Satan's desire, both in Isaiah and Ezekiel. He wanted, he was puffed up by his own pride and wanted to be on the same level as God. And so when he was cast out, he then recruited Adam and Eve to join him in that rebellion. And thus, when they joined him, sin entered into the world through Adam. Yeah. So here's a question that came to mind. Why do you think that so many people are unclear on the role that Satan plays or even his origin? Why would you think that is? Well, I think a couple. One is we we just don't know a lot. I mean, even these texts in Isaiah and Ezekiel, it's a prophecy telling us a little bit about Satan, but it also has um, implications in the in the uh, uh, earthly realm. So it, it, in the text, it talks about the, the king of Tyre. So there was a fulfillment of it in the earthly realm, but it had dual meaning. It also was describing what God did, I'm sorry, what Satan did in the heavenly realm. So uh, to be honest, it's a lot of confusion. We just don't know. We're just not given a lot of clarity on it. And so even the people who study this, great scholars, there's just not a lot to go on. And so a lot of it is just speculation. And so yeah. and there's, it's not surprising that people are confused. Even people who leverage their life to do it don't have great answers for it. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think too, I mean, we had made mention, was it, I think last week when we talked about, right, like, hey, Satan isn't the ruler of hell. That's, right. that's not his yes. role. It's not his domain. I think um, we had mentioned, well, the media has kind of taken that idea of Satan with a pitchfork on the yeah. right shoulder, right? Like every Tom and Jerry cartoon yeah. we've ever seen, that's the role yeah. he plays is, is that. Um, so I think some of it is maybe just a inherently within our culture, there's this misunderstanding, right? We wouldn't expect our culture to have a biblical understanding of right. what this thing is. So, um, you know, it kind of reinforces any of our, our lack of clarity. Yep. So, all right, well, here's, here's the next question. I want to spend a little bit of time on this because I think I read somewhere that sin's Eve's fault anyways. So could you talk <laughs> a little bit about why Adam's getting such a bad rap? I feel like Amy should have to answer for this one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> this, it is a great question, and it is one that we got. In fact, uh, for those of you who don't know, Amy is actually a part of our sermon planning group. So each week, uh, there's five or six of us. We'll sit in a room, and we'll walk through the text, and we'll throw out ideas. And so Amy's been a part of those. And so before I dive in uh, too deep into this, we, we do recognize, right, um, that Eve was there and actually Satan um, came up and had the conversation with Eve. And the text says there, Genesis, that she was the one who ate the fruit first and then handed it to her husband. And so there is a sense in which, yes, Eve played a role in here. So why, why does Adam get the blame? So that's the question you're asking us. And to be honest, I had a whole rant in my sermon this week um, where I was going to talk about that specifically. And I, it was just one of those things that I ended up having to cut at the last moment. I wish I didn't because this is really important um, because it's really easy to look at Eve. Scripture does say Eve was the one to first be deceived. So why is Adam the one to blame? And, and so 
this is really for the men. So I wanted to do a rant and just kind of lay it out for the guys here a little bit. Okay. And the, the quick answer is God made Adam responsible. In fact, as you go back to Genesis, um, the command to not eat from the fruit in the the fruit in the middle of the garden, the tree from the middle of the garden, that command was given to Adam even before Eve was created. So that was God said to Adam, do not eat this. And Eve wasn't even on the docket yet. She wasn't even created yet. So we, we know that the responsibility was placed on Adam. And we know that Adam did his job in the sense that he told Eve, okay? So again, they may have been there for a decade, two decades, three decades, who knows how long between the time Adam was created and the fall happens. Um, We know it's long enough for Adam to name all of the animals and to look and see that none of them are compatible to him. God creates Eve and things are great for a while. And then eventually the temptation comes. And Adam had shared with Eve, hey, that tree over there, we're not allowed to eat from that one. In fact, when Satan comes to Eve and says, hey, why not eat from this tree? She saw that it looked good. And all of a sudden she's tempted to eat it. And she, but yet she says to Satan, yeah, we're not allowed to eat from that one. In fact, we're not even allowed to touch it. Now, interestingly, God never said they couldn't touch it. They could have, for all we know, they could have built a playhouse in the tree. God didn't say you couldn't touch it. He just said, don't eat it. But she understood. Yeah, yeah, we're not allowed to eat that one. We're not even allowed to touch it. So E, I'm sorry. So Adam had told her the command. She knew it. And yet she was tempted. But she wasn't by herself. And again, this is the part that often gets overlooked. It says she ate from the tree and then she gave it to her husband. And the text says, gave it to her husband who was with her. So he's standing there the whole time while she's being tempted into this moment. And he doesn't do anything. His sin is a sin of passivity. And that sin of passivity is what so many of us men fall into, whereby that we actually don't take the role that God has called us to in leading our families. And so when Satan came in and is tempting his wife, he's just standing there and letting it happen. And he watches her as she walks out into sin and he doesn't do anything. And so that's what I wanted to say to the men this week. It's like, guys, we are responsible. We're responsible. God has made us to be responsible for our families. Like this idea of headship is a biblical thing. There are many people who say, well, it should just be 50-50. And that's fine. I think if you want to live that way, then by all means, you have that right. But here's what I'll say. Our temptation, when we stand before God, may end up being just like Adam's, whereby that we want to pass the buck. Well, this woman that you put me here with, well, I didn't do it. She, And I think God's response to us is going to be exactly like it was to Adam, that God still held Adam responsible. Like, like it was still his job to protect his wife. He was still to be the head over this 
family that was being created. And he abdicated that responsibility and was led into sin by his wife. And that's how sin enters into the world. So I just want to say to the guys, guys, you are responsible. Now, this is not a status to be abused. We got to think of it more as a burden that is to be bared. Like this is our role. It is our job. And again, I know for for some ladies, uh, modern women don't want to hear that, that it seems really archaic to say that outside, uh, out into our culture, this whole idea of headship and it's oppressive. But I just want to say to the ladies, like, like, this is not a role that you want. Like, this is not a burden you want to bear. This is not a responsibility that you want to be held accountable for. And I would just say for the ladies, like, if you have a man, a husband, who is trying to live out the biblical idea of headship, like, he's loving the Lord and trying to love you and he's trying to honor God and he's bearing the weight that God's called him to, man, my encouragement to you ladies is you ought to look him in the eye and just say, thank you. Like, thank you. And then you ought to help him. Like, again, Eve was created as a helper because that burden was even too great for Adam that he needed a helpmate, somebody to come alongside him. And man, this is, again, this is not something that you are to to use or abuse or to see as some way to have authority over your... No, no, no. It's not about authority. It's about responsibility. I like the word accountability to yeah. you there. Like that's what, that's the sense that I I feel anyways. It's like ultimately at the end of the day, when I'm on the other side of heaven, right? Like I, I will be held accountable for these things. And yeah. that's a scary thought more it than is. it's an encouraging thought for me. For sure. So yeah. it is a hundred percent. And again, I think our, our responsibility is ours because God gave it to us. And when we then, like Adam, our desire will be in that moment, I think all of us will be tempted to say, but it's this woman you put me, no, no, no. And God, God wasn't hearing it. It's like, no, 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 it is your responsibility. You, you failed in this moment by allowing this to happen for your wife. And so, uh, so it is a burden that we as men bear. Yeah. Ladies, I think, Again, if you have a man who's trying to do that to the best of his ability, that he's trying to honor God and lead his family and serve his kids and provide and protect and and love and encourage and serve like Christ does the church, lay down his life. Man, ladies, I just say you need to look your husband in the eye and say, thank you. And how can I help? How can I lift that burden with you? Again, that's why God gave us each other in this thing that we call marriage. So that's really good. Amy, being the woman in the room, would you share to uh, care to share some of your experience with us? Yeah, I'm super glad that we're talking about it because when we were going over it in the sermon prep meeting, I was like, this is one thing you should not cut. Uh, and yeah. so um, for me, it was super personal. Like this was reading through the sermon beforehand as I was reading it. I was like, this is this is the part that hits me the most because this is a conversation that Jonathan, my husband and I have had since before we got married. Um, He knew before we got married that I, you know, growing up in the church, I had that, well, the man is the head of the household. And he just, he grew up Lutheran, but then fell away for his, most of his early adult life. And so he had that, that idea that society, you know, well, we're 50, 50 and, you know, you're a woman and you have, you can do all the things that I can do. And so we had lots of conversations because we just looked at it different. Um, and he was like, I just feel weird about being the head of the household. Cause like, 
I don't know. It seems very old school of you. Like, I don't want to take that away from you. And then over the last like year, those conversations have grown and just, gosh, even it was a couple of weeks ago we were talking and he was like, you know, it's, it's weird because I'm starting to feel that sense of responsibility to be the head of the household. I'm starting to want to protect you from vulgar comments or situations that you shouldn't have to be in, you know? And he's like, I just don't know what to do with it. And so it's been fun for me, like watching him grow in his faith and grow in this leadership role that he now wants to take over the head of the household. He was telling me, and he was talking about the burden that he's bearing. And I couldn't help but smile just a little bit because it was like, he's growing so much that he's growing into that head of the household that God has held him accountable for, you know, that has placed on him. And so it made my heart smile a little bit to see him grow in that and to take on that leadership role. Yeah. So it's, I think it's important. I think society makes it really easy to back away from that, that role. Um, And I think like for me, even something that I could do more is ask him like, Hey, what can I do for you? You know, like I've watched him grow, but now I need to be like, Hey, how can I support you in this? You know? So. Yeah, that's really good. I do think you you kind of hit on it. Well, two things that I was thinking is like, oh, is this a byproduct of his faith growing? And I think it. I think the answer is yes, based on what you just said, which is just so cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just uh, you know want to stop and say that's such a such a cool thing to be a part of. Um, but then the flip side, from a societal perspective, it's like uh, you know empowering a woman is like a really big thought pro- like it's a really it's a really uh, big talking point right now it's like oh, how do we just empower women since they are powerful and strong and and yes mm-hmm. how do we do that because what that doesn't mean is pushing the burden of our responsibility onto them in fact i think that's the opposite of mm-hmm. empowering a woman well like what it, what it means is more supporting and walking through life with and having open and honest conversations with um, but I feel like so often the instinct is, oh, I'll just push the burden of the, the responsibility of making hard decisions or the way that we live our life or the, the focus on our faith and our family and that sort of thing. Like, I'll just push that responsibility onto, onto my wife. And that, again, is something that I think we're going to be held accountable for. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I would say even, look, look, everything swings, right? We can admit that there was a time where men in the church lorded it over their wives and they were authoritarian and they they didn't women weren't given a voice or a vote or uh didn't have any input into their family they were just told to sit down and to be quiet and you don't get to talk and and I don't think that's at all what scripture teaches and I don't think that's what headship looks like I think again for my wife and I it's a team sport. Like we recognize like our big decisions. We've made a a couple of big decisions over the last year. And those big decisions are things that we do together. But at the end of the day, when it, when it comes, our goal is to be united in all of those things. But at the end of the day, we've agreed that if we've thought through it and prayed through it and talked about it, and we can't come to an agreement that at the end of the day, She's willing to to allow me to take the lead on those because she recognizes that at the end, at the end, when we're standing before the Lord, I will be held responsible. And so, Brennan, I think you are 100% right. You totally hit it. So we went from that authoritarian structure with to the 80s when I grew up, the 70s and 80s. All of a sudden, men just stopped doing that. 
They just quit. And you just ended up with so many single moms that that the mothers all of a sudden are the ones who are leading all the families. And that's why you had for so many years and still even in so many churches, it it's the women who are trying to get their families to go to church and the guys at home and he's watching football or he's doing. So the spiritual, the vitality in the family is dependent upon the mom. It's the mom who's praying over the kids. It's the mom who's doing the budget and the finances and buying the groceries. It's the mom who's doing all of the things that 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 are very, very important without the father or a husband in the home to help lead in any of it. And so the educational responsibilities, the child rearing responsibilities, the financial, it's all been put onto the woman and she's been made to bear responsibility for things that I don't think she was made to bear. Um, again, it should be a team sport and there's maybe the mom is great at finances and should take it, but it doesn't, it doesn't give a pass for the husband or the father not to have a, to know what's going on or to understand or to have a voice in that. So all of that to say, I think you're hundred percent right, Brendan. We've, We've swung the pendulum so far that we've actually taken a burden that God has put on man and we've loaded it down onto uh, to our wives and onto our moms in a way that we should not do that. They should help. They shouldn't be bearing that in and of themselves. Well, and with that, like just thinking about it um, from a women's perspective, from where I sat listening to Jonathan talk about it, for me, it was also like a it's a different kind of love and respect that I saw when he was talking. Like I never once felt like, Oh, now he's going to have that authority. You know, it was more of a, he loves me deeper and has more respect for me deeper, more like Christ loves the church, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's more of that, you know, the bride and Christ and that, that relationship. That's what I saw in that moment. It was, this is what, this is what Christ and God did for us, like just protecting us. It was just a clearer picture. It was really, it's just neat. And yeah. I think we take that for granted in society. I think we've lost that picture a lot. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And to just, to, we can move on in just a moment, but one other thought came to mind, Amy, with your guys, this, you and Jonathan's story a little bit, because you asked the question like, oh, what's my role, um, like self-reflectedly mm-hmm. asked the question, what's my role in better supporting him in this? And I, that's curious to me, so, and I want to make sure I'm not making anything up or filling in any gaps, but part of your guys' story when it comes to when you connected here at Quad City over the last couple of years was like you came from a, a different church background, one that you maybe would feel a little more comfortable in by nature anyways, but you guys came here. And was it Jonathan that was like, oh, I like this church. We should we should start going there. Yeah. And you, excited for him to get engaged in the church community, were like, yes, 100%, let's do that, right? Like you submitted to that idea of, Oh, if he's interested in this, if he wants to do this thing, like, yeah, let's let's go in. I'll I'll sacrifice some of my preferences, which would be over here, to come here and help better engage. So again, I think that's a great picture mm-hmm. of you supporting him, like in this walk that he's been been a part of. Yeah, hundred percent. That was our story. I'm way more comfortable in a church of Christ with no music, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I mean, I'm getting way more comfortable talking rock. I love it, but. Yeah, he he loved the environment. He loved listening to Jason. He loved he loves the music. He loves all of the just the big, you know. And I was like, oof, I'm strong in my faith. I can listen to acapella music in the car. I'm gonna let he needs to grow right now. This yeah. is and so 
that's what we did. So I just think that's a cool story. Oh, of yeah. Like what a what a great way for you to be in him or in like with him in this this yeah. thing that you guys are, are doing. So yeah, I think that's a, really cool. A great journey. Okay, that's awesome. Well, let's move on a little bit. Here's another question that popped up on Sunday, Jason. Tell us um, about what happened to those people that existed in between the time of Adam and when we received the law via Moses, right, on, on Mount Sinai. Yeah, this this one popped up a lot. So I had several. Um, Josh was in Prescott Valley. He said he sent me a text and said, I've had like 10 people ask me because in our text for this weekend, it talks about uh, all of these people from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, and they didn't break any commands. Again, as I said on Sunday, the only command that was given to Adam was don't eat from this tree. And then they got kicked from the garden so nobody could eat from the tree. There wasn't another command given until Moses. So you had all of these people in between. And just for reference sake, again, I don't know that we always think through these things um, chronologically, from the time of Adam to the time of Moses is somewhere around 2,500 years. So it's a long time. And so when we, we think about this big chunk of history where there were no commands to disobey. And so yet, it says, they all died. They all had this consequence of sin. So what happened to all of these people? There's a couple of things I want to say. Um, One goes all the way back to the very beginning of our time in the book of Romans. And I gave an illustration like, we have to remember that this was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church in Rome that he hadn't met, and he's sharing all of these this theological and doctrinal uh, this these thoughts that they maybe hadn't wrestled with before, and somebody likely stood up on a Sunday morning and they read this whole thing out loud, and I I shared at the beginning of this that part of the downside of of going through this line by line and verse by verse as we're doing, it's like we're taking the frog and we are dissecting it. And we're pulling out, one week we're pulling out the liver and the next week we're pulling off a foot and the next week we're pulling out the eyeball and we're dissecting this thing. But we, in doing that, it's great. We learned so much about the frog, but in doing that, we miss that this was a living being, that it was a frog that could jump and ribbit and blink and stick its tongue out. And it had life and vitality all together. And so we're chopping it up and looking at it little by little. And so in doing that, we're missing the fact that this is all one big thing together. The question about between Adam and Moses, what happened to all of these people, we've already covered it. And so the part of it is that we just covered it six weeks ago and eight weeks ago and 12 weeks ago where the people in Rome who are listening to chapter five, they heard it seven minutes ago when the guy up front was reading chapter three. So let me go back just a little bit and try to remind us of a couple of things that we've learned already. So let's start back in um, let's start back in chapter two. So again, what happened? There was no law. What happened to these people? Well, Paul tells us in Romans, chapter 2. He says, all who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law. So that's chapter 2, verse 12. So he tells us those who didn't have the law 
those who were not given the law, they're going to perish apart from the law. Like they're going to be held to account for their behavior separate from the law. Uh, if we back up again, just, I'm sorry, I should have done, started here. Let's start in verse five. It says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when the righteous judgment will be revealed. So, verse six, God will repay each person according to what they have done. So everybody's gonna be judged by what they have done. Those who by persistence in doing good and, I'm sorry, doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, that person's gonna receive eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Then we get to verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law. So God is going to judge everyone according to what they have done. Those who have done good will be judged by that. Those who have done evil will be judged by that. Even if you had the law or didn't have the law, you're going to be judged by what you've done. And those who did not have the law, we've already learned back in chapter 1, that God revealed himself through all of creation. This is verse chapter 1, verse 20 that God's eternal power, his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So even before the law was given, people understood that there is a God and I'm accountable to him because of creation. So we have creation that's telling us about who God is and his divine qualities, his eternal nature, that we should surrender and submit to him. So we've got creation that are telling us what to do. And then in chapter three, we have our consciences that are telling us what to do. Like, so nobody is without excuse. Actually, uh, chapter two, I said chapter three. Our consciences are doing it. So look at verse 13 in chapter two. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey it who will be declared righteous. Indeed, When Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts and their consciences are bearing witness in their thoughts, sometimes accusing them and other times defending them. And this will all take place on the day God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ. So through creation and through our conscience, we all know what is right and what is wrong. We all have this innate God-given understanding. Even before there was ever a law given, Cain knew that killing Abel was wrong. He didn't need a law to tell him that. His conscience told him that. And we know he knew it was wrong because when God came to Cain and said, hey, where's your brother? What was Cain's response? "Uh, Who am I? My brother's keeper? If he didn't think killing his brother was wrong, he would have just said, oh, I took a rock and whacked him in the head. His body's laying out behind the shed. He didn't do that. He knew what he had done was wrong. He didn't need somebody to write down, do not kill your brother. He knew it. And so when God confronted him, he deflects from it because he doesn't want to take ownership of what he has done. So long before there was a law, people understood right and wrong from creation and from the conscience. So Between the time of Moses, I'm sorry, Adam and Moses, everybody knew what to do through the conscience and through creation. So 
But then the law comes along and it just reveals over and over and over again just how bad you really are. So hopefully that helps clear up a little bit of it. Let's go to a second piece. So how did someone, the follow-up question that I got was, okay, so what happened to all of those people? Where did they go? Like when they died, what happened to them? And here's what we know. Again, we've already covered it. Abraham fits into this bracket between the time of Adam and the time of Moses. So we've already covered how is it that that Abraham was made right with God? And the answer is, we just learned about it all through chapter four. He just answered it before we get to chapter five. It's by faith that he believed God. When God came and revealed himself, he believed the promises of God. And it was by faith that Abraham was deemed righteous in God's sight. So all of those people between the time of Adam and the time of Moses who walked by faith in God, that is what saved them. That's what saved them. It wasn't their works. It wasn't a sacrifice. It wasn't a a, a lamb. It was their faith in acting on, on their conscience and creation to follow and honor God It was their faith, and it was these acts of faith that made them right with God. So we just have to look at Abraham. So what happened with Abraham? He walked by faith. What happened to him when he died? Well, he went to be with the Lord. And we know this because of Luke 16. So if you go to Luke 16, you have this story of what we call the rich man and Lazarus. Okay, so the rich man and Lazarus, you may remember, some people call this a parable, I am of the opinion that it is not a parable. I think that Jesus is actually telling us of something that happened in history. A couple of reasons for that. One, in most of Luke's parables, it'll tell you, oh, this is a parable. Then Jesus told a parable. None of what we find here in this story, Jesus doesn't call it a parable. No other parable do we have in scripture that uses someone's name. So nobody is given a personal name in any parable. It is the farmer, it's a man went out and sowed a seed in the field, there was a king who did this. Nowhere is there given a name, but we're given names in this one, because I think it's actually historical. So you had the rich man, Lazarus, the poor guy on his at his gate, they both end up dying. The rich man is sent to Hades, he's sent to the realm of the dead, into what scripture calls torment. All right, so again, we can get into whole heaven and hell as we think of it don't actually exist yet. That's a whole nother conversation. I'm probably just opening up a can of worms here. Probably. (laughs) They don't actually exist. Heaven will not exist until Jesus comes back. Uh, We all know this because scripture says when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth in the current heaven and the current earth will pass away. Those are going to be gone. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Where we are going to spend eternity doesn't exist yet. Jesus is going to come back, create a whole new earth where we'll actually spend. We're not going to be floating around in clouds. We're going to be on the new earth and Jerusalem will come down out of heaven onto earth according to Revelation. So where you're spending eternity doesn't actually exist yet, but that's one other issue. Right now, there is a place of torment, and there is a place that we call paradise, okay? Remember when Jesus was on the cross and the the guy next to him who was being crucified, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. So that's where he is. So there is these 
two realms of the dead. There's a place called paradise, a place called torment. And in Luke 16, the rich man goes to this place of torment. Lazarus goes to the place of paradise. And in this text, in Luke 16, it's given a name. It says, Lazarus was taken to Abraham's bosom. Like Abraham is in paradise right now. Like he's there. And in fact, there's this chasm that separates torment from paradise that the guy in torment actually can see Abraham in paradise and says, Abraham, send somebody over here with some water just to cool the tip of my tongue. And he said, no, there's a chasm. I can't. Nobody can come over there. Well, then let me go back and tell my brothers so that they don't end up here. Nah, you can't do that either. They've got the laws of Moses. They'll figure it out, but they're not going to listen. And so here's what we know. The, the wicked are in torment. That's what Luke 16 tells us. And the righteous are in paradise, even Abraham, who died in between Adam and Moses, is in paradise right now. And those who are of the faith of Abraham will join him in that place, whether they came before Jesus or after Jesus, which brings us back to this text. Again, if you were listening to this for the very first time in the book, uh, uh, in the church in Rome, you would have heard this three minutes before we got to chapter five. This is the end of chapter three. It says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand all unpunished. All of the sin from Adam to Moses, it was all unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So when Jesus died, For all of those people, for Abraham, his sin had been left unpunished, but he was in Christ through faith. And when Christ died, all of Abraham's sin was punished through Jesus. So we always think about the grace of Jesus flows both ways from the cross. All of those who have faith before he came were covered by Jesus' death and all the sin of those who came after Jesus, all of their sin is covered by Jesus at the cross. And all of those who have faith in Jesus are the ones who get their sins covered in Jesus. So, yeah, that's really, that's really good. I think that gives a really uh, clear picture as to, yeah, exactly what happened to all this. I I hope so. Amy, what do you think? As you're sitting here listening to it, what questions be the listener for us? Um, Well, I mean, I think you answered those questions because when we were talking about it in the Romans prep meeting, I, as we were talking about that in the Romans prep meeting, I asked that question because yeah. um, it's not something that I ever thought about. And so your the first thing you told me was the picture of the cross of the grace flowing before and after. And so I think that just is a wonderful picture of God's grace and how all of them are covered. And it's so easy, like you said, to forget the timeline. Yeah. As you're reading it, it takes, I don't sit down and read that fast. So it does. It takes me days to get through it where mm-hmm. they're getting through it in a couple minutes. Right. And so it's easy to forget that. Yeah. yeah. It's so chapter one, two, three, and four all address this very topic. And again, because we're segmenting the thing, we forget 
oh no, they just heard five minutes ago that the grace of Jesus flows both ways, that God covered it by faith, even in Abraham, between Adam and Moses, Abraham was saved by faith, um, even without the law. So yes, all of those things connect as we're working through our way through Romans. That's good. So that leaves us with just one more question, and it really comes from the the key illustration that you had from Sunday, right? You had this this uh, illustration of all of us, every human born sans Jesus being born through Adam, right? Like that's this illustration. You had the jar on the stage with all of the the little hacky sacks with the emoji faces on them. It's like, hey, we were all born in Adam, and then you lifted up the other one, right? And it was this idea of, hey, but now we have this chance to be to be in Jesus instead, right? And that's like, that's the better option. And we have that choice to make. Like we are able to make that choice to be, to be in Jesus. So the question becomes, what about those who died before they were able to make that choice? And I'm speaking specifically about like infants and, and babies, like those who, who passed before being able to make the choice to be in Jesus. Could you talk maybe a little bit about that, Jason? Yeah. The, um, yeah, so this is a big question is what do we do with babies? If we, the the whole idea here is original sin. Like we all have heard this idea about original sin. How do we, is original sin a thing? And are all babies condemned if they die before they come to faith? Like this is a real thing. And we know many denominations and many uh, uh, faith practices have this as a part. Like if you're a Catholic, this is the reason that your parents baptized you as a baby is because they see baptism as a sacrament that has saving power that you have to have because if you don't have it, you're going to die and you're going to be separated from God forever. And so that that's this issue here. And so as Protestants, we see it a little bit differently, um, but it is a great question. Like, well, how do we, why do we see it different? Like, this is pretty cut and dry. Like, all of those who are in Adam, man, they're they're out. Like, we have to be in Christ. So, how do we do that? How do we think through that as babies? And the way that we've talked about it as, as Protestants is we use this language called the age of accountability. And it's a kind of a nebulous term because nobody has a date on it. We don't have a year that we can put on it. When does someone become accountable? Um, I've got some ideas around it that I'm not willing to go publicly with. And so if you are out there someday and want to hear me talk about it, I'm not going to go on the record for it. I've got some ideas, but they're just Jason's opinion. And so there's not enough of scripture to help us understand. But what do we think about children? How do we, how do we think about children? What do we do with that? And here's what I would say, like, we understand that God's grace is bigger than all of us. And what I would say as it relates to children, we need to think through what Jesus taught us about children. So again, Jesus is our picture of the heart of God. He is God in flesh. And so what did Jesus teach us about about children? Well, more than once in scripture, Jesus would pull children to himself and say things like this. This is Matthew chapter 19 says, then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked him. And Jesus said, 
Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So what does Jesus teach us about children in the kingdom? It belongs to them. Like they are in. Like there there isn't a question in Jesus' mind about whether a child should get into the kingdom. He says, no, 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 the kingdom belongs to them. And there's another text where Jesus will say to his disciples, unless you become like these little children, you will never enter into the kingdom. So when we think about how Jesus, who is God, views children, he does not see them as someone on the outside looking in. He sees them as inside and that we have to become like them to get into the kingdom. So I have no qualms zero qualms with telling anyone who has a child or a baby who passes away, there should be zero doubt in their mind that they are in the arms of Jesus. Like there, I I have no qualms saying that because of what Jesus teaches us about the heart of God toward little children. They, we need to come become like them. They don't need to become like us. They don't need to have faith like we have faith. Jesus specifically says, we have to have faith like the little children. We need to become like them. They don't need to become like us. So babies, they're all good. Yeah. How, how God chooses to work that out in his sovereignty, I don't know. But God in flesh reveals to us that, that they are in. The kingdom belongs to them. Um, that's great. So I, I, I mean, there's probably more people who have grown up. I grew up with this understanding that as parents, we're responsible for our kids' sins. Like, we're the ones that are going to be held accountable at the end of the day. Like, when Spencer, you know, as she's like 13, 14, 15, you know, starting to make those big teenager sins, um, I'm the one that's going to have to answer for them because I raised her. And it was my job to raise her in knowing God and making and to protect her from those sins. So where does that fall? Is that even script like? Um, I think it probably goes a step too far. I think I would say in, in much the same way, we are responsible, maybe not accountable in those because scripture talks about, look, the child is not going to be held responsible for the sins of the father and the father for the sins of the son. As their children, I think you're hundred percent right. We will we do bear a burden on behalf of our children. Uh, there's a command, train your children up in the way of the Lord. That is our responsibility. And so I, I think you're right. I don't think that my son's sin would keep me from the kingdom, but it, for sure I am responsible to train my kid up in the ways of the Lord. Right, yeah. And my thought on that is like, um, again, you can think it's just, you can simplify it almost a little bit and think of it, you know, the way that that we look at stewarding finances, right? It's like, hey, this is kind of like that. We steward the relationship in the way that we raise our kids. Like we are, we are held responsible and accountable for the way that we steward that relationship, the way that I talk to my son, the way that I try to help him connect with church and love, love Jesus even at five years old, right? The way that I teach him and that sort of thing. And I think, yeah, for sure I'm responsible as head of household, as as his parents, I'm responsible to be doing that as a follower of Jesus. Um, but at some point they will be able to make their own decisions and Porter already has. He already yeah. has the ability to make his own decisions and sometimes they're sinful, right? Whether he knows it or, or not quite right. yet. We talked a little bit about that like uh, this past week, right? No, I never had to teach Porter how to be deceptive. Mm-hmm. I didn't, that's not something I had to teach him. He just by nature like knows how to do that. So, um, 
but yeah, one hundred percent. That's a great clarifier. Uh, for sure. Yeah, that's super helpful. I think again, just to sum it up, if you have lost a baby, if there is a child, again, I just want to put your mind at ease. God in the flesh, Jesus pulled the children into him and says to all of the adults around him, you have to become like them. They don't become like you. You have to become like them. The kingdom belongs to them. So I don't believe that we need to worry about the salvation of our young ones who have died. That should not keep us awake at night. We should picture them in the arms of Jesus Mm -hmm. and look forward to the day that we're going to join them. Yeah, that's so good. That's, That's really good. All right, guys. Well, I think that puts a a bow on today's conversation. Thanks so much. And we will chat again real soon. All right. Well, that's a wrap on episode 17 of the Gospel for Everyone podcast. A special shout out and thanks to Amy for joining us on the show today. I know she was a little nervous about jumping on air with Jason and I, uh, but really I think her perspective added a lot of value to our conversation today. So thank you so much, Amy, for joining us. As always, if you have any questions or comments from Sunday's message, join us at quadcity.church/romans, where you could submit questions and comments to be answered directly on the podcast. Thanks again for sticking around with us today. We hope it added value to your relationship with Jesus as we walk through the book of Romans together, and we can't wait to see you again next time.